0: podcast my name is tom chick
1: and i am not playing vital lacerda's co2 i am mike pullman and i am not playing risk you
0: who is <laughs>
2: <laughs> hello um this is asan lopez and i am not playing the cracks of Quedlingburg. what is that even um you know it's a game i've been hearing a lot about lately i think it won the spiel de jar recently and it's uh it looks like a casual potion exploding game and i was tempted to get it for the family but it looks like it's selling out really fast so... is it,
0: does it does it have ducks in it or is that just something in the title <laughs> oh, no. just
2: a, it has just... it has ducks
1: okay
0: <laughs> sounds a little bit too twee for me uh so, uh, before we, we start talking about what we actually are playing, I want to briefly bring up something that uh, folks, I think, don't bring up enough. Normally we, we grumble and we fuss when customer support things are going wrong or when a publisher screws up a board game. Uh, I'm currently having huge issues with uh, It for the delivery of CO2. Uh, so rather than gripe about that, I want to bring up two instances of customer support that I've had recently that went just swimmingly and that I think the the companies deserve kudos for. Uh, the first is, and uh, Hassan, I think I mentioned this to you, you and I both have the Lost Expedition and we got the add-on for it, Fountain of Youth, right? Right. And I complained that the cards for Fountain of Youth are slightly larger, so that when you shuffle them into the deck, you can feel them under your thumb as separate cards. And furthermore, the backs are printed uh, more dark than the regular cards. So at the top of your deck, you can see what's going to be drawn next. You said it doesn't bother you, and to be fair, it's not that huge a deal. It's not a game where you're tracking specific cards. Whether you know a card that's coming up next is from the expansion or the core set isn't gonna help you that much. Uh, but nevertheless, I sort of feel like this was a this was a production snafu, where they screwed up the printing of the expansion to where it didn't fit with the printing of the core game. So I sent them a little uh, email saying, you know, uh, the cards are larger and the print is darker. Uh, do you have any recourse to, to replace these or fix them? And they emailed me back very quickly and said, uh, no, we don't, but we did reprint the base game. Using the same printing process that that printed the add on. So what we can do is send you a replacement of the base game where the cards are larger and the print is darker so that it actually matches the add on rather than vice versa. And they did that free of charge. uh, And I now own a lost uh, Expedition game with the Fountain of Youth add-on, and all the cards look the same, and they match perfectly, and it didn't cost me a penny beyond, of course, buying the game originally. So, Osprey Games, uh, great job. That was very cool of them to do.
1: Wow, and you, <clears throat> you didn't have to send back your old one or anything?
0: I didn't, so if anybody wants a, cork, a copy of uh, Lost Expedition, I'm sitting right here on redundant cards. Uh, <laughs> and so, Hassan, you could, I'm sure... Now, if you if it started to bother you now that I've brought it up, you could uh, get your copy updated.
2: Yeah, this is making me think. So now it's just a, the cost of the effort that goes into that. Tom. Exactly.
0: So, right. Hmm. Sitting down, writing that email. And yeah. I
2: don't know. Yeah. I don't know.
0: The other well, one I want to call – oh, go ahead. Sorry,
1: Mike. I was going to say, when you don't have to ship it back, it makes it so much easier, though.
0: Oh, it really does. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so the other thing I want to call out is uh, – and, and, Mike, this is something – I. I After I tell my story, I'm curious if this is something you've dealt with. Uh, When we first recorded a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a game called Metal Dawn, which Uh, I thought, yeah, it was just junk. It was clear that the developer, like there were things that I was able to identify within 10 minutes of sitting down with it as this isn't right. This is wrong. This is screwy. This is something that they didn't consider. Uh, there were just production issues, it was flimsy, there were rules issues, the designer wasn't being very communicative on BoardGameGeek, and it was a full-price, like, $60 game. And Lord knows I've bought plenty of crappy $60 games. Uh, but in talking to the designer and him sort of waffling and begging off on some of the issues, a friend of mine who watched the thread, who is way more uh, fiery about this sort of thing, he emailed me and he was like, you should uh, demand a refund, uh, you know, uh, send an email to the developer, to to the the store where you bought it from, and just demand a refund. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know. So so I sent an email to Miniatures Market, uh, from whom I'd bought Metal Dawn, uh, saying, you know, this game is really kind of screwy. What is your policy for refunds? And they sent me an email back saying, "Uh, just here is a FedEx label. Send it back to us. When it arrives, we will give you either your money back or store credit. And no wow. questions asked. And so I did. I took them up on that. And I was like, and you know what? I'll Because you guys are that cool about it, I'll just take store credit and buy something else from you. So yeah. Miniatures Market, Osprey Games, great jobs as, as far as I'm concerned. That's awesome. So, Mike, yeah, do for... you ever get return? Because you, you run a gaming store, Gaming Goat in uh, Littleton, Colorado. Do you ever get return attempts?
1: I get returns usually, but it's people who got like a duplicate gift or something like that. I've not had returns of open items unless there's something actually wrong with it, like you know misprint or something like that.
0: Right, like defective, uh, yeah.
1: Right, you know, sometimes you know like the the cardboard sheets with all the counters are printed wrong or right. misaligned, um, and then we'll just exchange it, and then I can get a credit uh, from the distributors for a, a bad copy. Uh, it, but for someone who just doesn't like a game, that's hard for me to get any recourse on. You know, mm-hmm. just, I could give people credit to make them happy, but then I'm stuck with a game that is not doing much.
0: So, so in this case, I'm guessing Miniatures Market got stuck with my copy. Like they basically ate the cost that they right. paid for. Okay.
1: I suspect that's true. Now, I mean, you know, if it's a customer that's spending tons of money every week, I might do that for them day to day. That's a lot harder to just eat that cost.
0: Right, right. Yeah, well, I've, I've spent enough at this. I imagine that might have figured into their,
1: uh, <laughs> <true>. their equation
0: <laughs> there. Hassan, have you ever returned a game because it
2: was so bad? You know, that's a great question. I was racking my brain to think if I ever had. I don't believe so. I think it's one of those situations where I'm, it's like, you know, if I buy it and it turns out to be crap or or just doesn't, I guess, jive with me, then I just kind of accept it. And I either try to trade on BGG or sell it to somebody, give it to my brother, maybe, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's a, you know, I, I think as consumers of board games nowadays, we've we're we're kind of flush with information about games before we buy them and it's led to this I don't know there's pros and cons to it but it's led to this situation where we spend an enormous amount of time at least I do researching a game before buying it to the point where I'll have watched like a rules video and this video and that video and read reviews and on the one hand that leads to obviously a lot more informative purchases and I'm less likely to be stuck with something like you were, where you, you kind of went with something that looked cool, and I'm going to give it a try. Right. Um, but I I also kind of miss those days, right? Where, you, I mean, when I was a kid, I I distinctly remember walking to a game store when I was, I don't know, I was probably like 10 or 12 or something and buying my first copy of Talisman just on a whim and just adoring that game to death, you know, in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just don't think we have... As many experiences like that anymore. I mean, Mike, do you? When people come into your game store, how often do you think they're just picking something off the shelf that jumps at them and just doing it without any research beforehand? It's, it kind of depends on the customer. You know, there's definitely people who come in and watch the Facebook
1: page and say, "I'm gonna go get this new title right away." Uh, you know, there's people who don't even get past the the front checkout because it's already waiting for them. <laughs> and then there's people who browse for quite a while or looking for suggestions. But they're typically buying things that are like Ticket to Ride or code names, more kind of mainstream games you might find at Target. Right. And they're looking for suggestions. Um, but yeah, a large percentage of customers know what they're looking for. And, you know, I've heard of this game. I read about it and that kind of thing.
0: Part of it, too, Hassan, is back when you bought, you know, when we bought Talisman, it was one of, you know, five or six games that were out there. Now you look at – you know, Mike has been doing this great thing where he'll – I say great thing. It's actually a terrible thing where he will post all the new games <laughs> that he's getting every week, which get me to look them up. And it's like that hotness list on Board Game Geek. I see something pop up there, and I'm like, oh, what's that? And then I look into it. I'm like deluged with, with literally like a dozen games or so every week that I'm curious about. Uh, and there's a good chance that at least one or two of those would be I'm curious enough about them to actually maybe buy them.
1: There yeah, you Get ready to post that pretty soon here, Tom.
2: Oh, no, don't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I see it almost as a, I mean, we call this the, you know, the golden age of board gaming right now, but it's almost a problem in the industry. There's, I think I saw Danish saying that there's like over 3,000 new board games that come out every year, which is kind of an absurd number, right? It's just, I don't. I mean, speaking as someone who, who wants to sell a game, right, so design and sell a game, how do you get your voice heard in that loud of a crowd? And yeah. as a consumer, how do you possibly sift through all of that to find the gems? Or I guess rather, like the gems are going to rise, like the gloom havens are going to rise because of the buzz. But how do you how do you find those like? pretty good games, um, you know? I, I
0: think for, for me, Hassan,
2: what I do is,
0: it's for me the same way that I decide what, what movies to see or books to read, and it tends to be, did the person who directed this movie or wrote this book or developed this game, do I know something else that they've done? Uh, and generally, if I do, I'm, I'm okay if I don't like it. Like if I, I see a, a Coen Brothers movie and I don't like it, that's fine. I, I like watching what they create. And I feel the same way with certain board game developers. You know, Stefan Feld wants to do something new. Okay, I'm curious about it. Nah, eh, that one didn't work for me. That's fine. Uh, but, but something like this, this guy who did Metal Dawn, he's, a, he's kind of a first-time developer. And, like, I should know better. I should be skeptical reading a book where I've never heard of the author or going to a movie where I've never heard of the director before. I should be skeptical buying a first-time designer's game. Uh, so, so for me, a lot of it is what else have they done? What do I know about it? Okay, I'm curious to see what their next thing is. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, okay, well then, what are we playing this week? Uh, let me go first because I want to bring up something that I haven't really played, and this was a uh, this was a, another kind of an impulse purchase on my part. I played this game once. Um, I have since then played a couple of this. Uh, designer's other games, and here's another instance where anytime this guy makes something, I think I'm going to be curious to buy it uh, because of Chaos in the Old World. The guy named Eric Lang made that, and he has since kind of iterated on this dudes on a board game uh, uh, theme, this idea, uh, and I think the latest, is, he might have done something since then, but the latest big dudes on a board game he has done is Rising Sun um actually do i have that wrong that is eric lang isn't it yeah absolutely yeah okay yep. it's gonna feel really silly so i played rising sun once uh and then the guy who owns it doesn't always join our group so i had not been able to play it again and i decided okay i really need to have my own copy here for when we have the option to play it and my friend hasn't showed up with his copy so i bought rising sun i bought their little uh religion expansion their monsters expansion and i now own it and am sort of gazing at it really really wanting to play it <laughs> uh now mike you say you have seen it but you also are not super familiar with the actually playing it right
1: correct i have it i just got it recently but i've not had a chance to play it yet you did know, you get
0: the extra monsters and uh shrine gods
1: uh, i did not yet hmm. but you know I opened the base set, and it has tons of cool miniatures, and I'm excited to play it. I just haven't had it on the, on the table yet.
0: I will say the the extra gods, and, and I, I kind of regret getting the monsters and the extra shrine gods, because they're basically mm-hmm. modular. They're like, hey, you can just throw this in if you want. It's not like a new system or anything. It's like, you can put these in instead of the other things. I feel like, uh, you know, I could have held off on that. But they're here if I want them. Uh, so, Hassan, you probably are the most familiar among us with Rising Sun. You, you have it, and you've played it?
2: yeah my, my buddy Eric owns it, and he sort of went all in on the Kickstarter, got all the the juicy stuff. And yeah, we've gotten to the table, I would say four or five times maybe. and um, it's definitely in our wheelhouse, my gaming group is we're all about sort of confrontational area control games. and I would say that blood rage, Eric Lang's you know, previous big miniature area control game um ranks up there among our favorites if not if not our number 1 so yeah we were very interested to try this one out did uh rising sun obsolete
0: blood rage <laughs>
2: um i i think the answer to that might depend on who you talk to in our group i i i i tend to be um i'm i'm probably least enamored with rising sun compared to everybody else in my group um and i can offer reasons for that if you want to hear them i do um, Okay. (laughs) So uh, it's hard to talk about Rising Sun without referencing Blood Rage. So I'll say this, it's, you know, it's, it's a spiritual successor to Blood Rage. And I think Lang has this plan to come out with with a a, a trio of them, it's going to be a trilogy, a sort of mythological trilogy of area control games. And Blood Rage was his Viking one, Rising Sun is his um, I guess you know Japanese mythology, and I we, I don't think anyone knows what the third one's going to be, mm-hmm. um, but they 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 do share similar DNA in that they're area control games with what I would call modern sensibilities. Um, you know, just a couple examples of that is that um, instead of combat being determined by random dice rolls, which is something that's, you know, very sort of 1980s. Um, it, instead, there's gonna be clever use of cards or in the case of Rising Sun, there's blind bidding that occurs during the the battles. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of its of their designs is that the, the winner isn't determined by last man standing on a map, which is, you know, you might think that's traditional to a big sprawling area control game, but rather, In both these games, the winner is the person who has the most victory points at the end of the game. That's a very sort of modern, maybe even European approach to this type of game. And Lang has a particular fondness for garnering VP through a combination of both area control as well as as sort of clever card combos. Um, They they really lie at the heart of both Blood Rage and Rising Sun. and 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 those are all things I really like. I really I like Lang's approach to area control a lot. I do think he's a really great designer. And like you were saying, Tom, I, I always pay attention to everything he puts out because it's worth a look certainly. But um, whereas I would say that Blood Rage is is clean and precise and paced exceptionally well, and especially I think packed full of dramatic moments—moments moments where we're like literally cheering around the table or groaning. I. I've found personally that Rising Sun is more laborious. It kind of it labors beneath the weight of its clever systems. And my overwhelming emotion when I play it is one of exhaustion. I mean, no. I, I, that's, I, that's just that one of these games where at the, when I'm finished playing it, I feel really tired and it's not an it's not a pleasant feeling.
0: Can you what's give the, me a. Oh, go ahead. The, Mike.
2: What's the playtime on that? How long does it you uh, take you to finish a game? We we found that it takes us a good solid three hours to play it, and we usually play it four player.
0: And is it is is Blood Rage shorter, or just paced better?
2: I think it's both. I think okay. I think we can we can now. I mean, we know Blood Rage a little bit better, so we can get it done in two hours. Um, but I think it's just paced a lot better. I mean, a, a major issue with Rising Sun is that it's got this. It's got this very fun area control system where you're putting your units out on the map, and you can even recruit monsters, obviously, and put these big miniatures out on the map, and you are trying to control different regions, um, which will give you bonuses, they'll give you various forms of income. But the, the battles don't happen right away. You're basically sort of setting yourself up for the battle phase, which is going to happen at the end of each season, I think is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to that battle phase, you, you sequentially go through each of the regions and conduct any battle that might be happening in each of those regions. Um and each of those battles is a, a psychologically sort of tense experience where everybody who's involved in that battle is going to engage in a blind bid of, of money, um, which they can dedicate to these various activities in that battle, um, including seppuku or you know uh, hiring Ronin. And it's, it's a little complex. I find it fiddly. And um, to be honest, the blind bidding doesn't sit sit well with me i think that when when people are simultaneously kind of deciding where to put their coins in what um you're you're trying to obviously read what your opponents might do you're trying to calculate all these possible permutations like what if dave does this and what if simon does this and and that's just one battle and you might have three or four of those in a season so Um, I find that it it just drags a little bit too much, whereas Blood Rage is just this very visceral, immediate experience in terms of combat.
0: That's interesting to hear you say that about the blind bidding, and it sounds like your your main complaint with uh, Rising Sun is there's a lot of blind bidding, because... When I look over Rising Sun, and it didn't really occur to me when I first played it, it's just since I've gotten it and have looked over the rules and been taking notes and thinking about how to teach it, it reminds me a lot of another game that I really like that, that you're familiar with that also has blind bidding where you're thinking, okay, who's going to put someone, and what if he goes there, but then I've decided to do this, but then what if he does that, and then this guy does this? <laughs> it reminds me of another game that I really like that you know called Clockwork Wars, <laughs> which you you designed. And actually, I look at Rising Sun, and I see a lot of things in Rising Sun that I really liked in Clockwork Wars as well, such as this idea of the area control, but you can also uh, divert your guys to control in Clockwork Wars. At it's a court in Rising Sun, it's these little uh, temples. Uh, The way that the training cards in Rising Sun change the rules is similar to the way that the tech cards in Clockwork Wars uh, changes the rules. Uh, bringing onto the board these uber units, these like badass and in both instances in Clockwork Wars and in Rising Sun, they're miniatures. Uh, you can bring on these big things that are available to anyone. It's whoever gets to them first and they sit on the board and kind of change the rules. Reminds me a lot of Clockwork Wars, but but mainly just that blind bidding of what if he does a but then i do b but then that guy does c then i should have done d uh but in clockwork wars it's just once a turn and it's everybody doing it simultaneously then you get it out of the way and you go on to the next turn um right right but so i just i just see a lot of stuff in rising sun that i really like in clockwork wars and uh i'm looking forward <laughs> to, to getting it to the table and, and
2: trying no it. and 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 I, I i hear what you're saying tom and and um, I mean, I love the comparison. Of course, I love thinking, you know, thinking about Clockwork Wars and and how it how it fits within this genre and and, um, and and to be honest, that is one of the reasons that I like Rising Sun. I think there's there's definitely parts of the game that I find very enjoyable, and I think it is an intricate, clever game. I just think that the this is one of those games where uh, multiple times in a game, I'll just be sitting back thinking to myself. I don't know what I'm doing exactly, <laughs> you know, like there's just too much going on for me to keep track of my strategy and to even know if I'm doing something right. Um, I I'm, I'm maybe not getting enough immediate feedback. I'm, I'm unclear on like what direction I should be taking my strategy. And usually when I have that feeling about a game, it's, I think, to me, it's just because there's there's just one too many systems within that within that right. game. Something right. that could have been um, pulled out and made the game a more um, transparent experience.
0: There's definitely a longer wind up in Rising Sun than in Clockwork Wars. I think Clockwork Wars is a lot snappier, getting you to the equivalent of that battle phase. Uh, whereas there's I guess what ten or, no seven whole rounds around the table before anybody fights each other in, in right. Rising Sun. Yeah. 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 But for me, what it comes down to is they both have this kind of Euro game elegance in terms of the, the, the systems are relatively simple, but they're in this vividly themed, almost Ameritrash context uh, with just a, a lot of st- stuff, uh, just a, a lot of like cool theming is going on. Like there aren't that many verbs and they're relatively simple interactions, but they do a great job of, of expressing this sprawling, fantastical fictional universe with uh, right. Rising Sun and Clockwork Wars. Uh, so that's what I'm psyched about. But, uh, one
2: one question I was going to ask you is how do you, how do you generally feel about diplomacy in games like this? So, you know, Lang claimed that Rising Sun was in part um, you know, motivated by a desire to incorporate sort of diplomacy elements into his area control game, and there is sort of a core diplomatic element to the yeah. game where um, players have to kind of pair up and form alliances, and that's kind of interesting, especially in a five-player game because somebody's going to get left out of that system. And when you take actions in Rising Sun, your your buddy also gets a benefit, but the other players don't. And then there's this additional opportunity um, to potentially betray them at some point. And um, well, well, one thing I'll say is that I, I I don't think that the diplomacy element in Rising Sun quite quite hits an exciting sort of um, point of fruition, but. But also, I've, I think what I've discovered about myself is I'm not actually fond of, of war games where people have to kind of bullshit each other a little bit. Like, ah. if, if it's a game where I'm trying to convince you of something and then you're trying to and then, you know, you're trying to form an alliance with Mike and then there's going to be a point where you're probably going to betray someone. I I I think that social element in a game kind of rubs me the wrong way.
0: OK, because I, I love nothing more than when a game introduces an element of psychological interaction among the players above and beyond the rules. And oftentimes the cheap and easy way to do that is with this kind of diplomacy where, okay, Mike and I aren't gonna attack each other because we're gonna attack you, Hasan. But my, my favorite games are games that incorporate that in a unique way. Uh, Archipelago, Archipelago uh, is one of them with uh, the whole traitor mechanic and everyone having secret objectives. Troyes is the same thing. Everybody has secret objectives. There's a Martin Wallace game called Study in Emerald which does really cool things with who's on what team and how they each score. Uh, so I love psychological interaction as a system above and beyond the rules. So I am all for that diplomacy stuff. <laughs> Mike, so if, if Hassan is anti-diplomacy and I am pro diplomacy nonsense where do you stand
1: i like it when the game mechanics include something that assumes people are going to make alliances uh what comes to mind is eclipse where you uh trade these tokens and then if someone betrays it Mm. there's a negative victory point because of it Mm -hmm. so the the game has a system that accommodates the inevitable backstabbing that will occur Mm -hmm. uh but i do like when there's alliances except you know if you're playing three players that always gets kind of dicey
0: that's that. You know, the whole three-player thing is exactly yeah. Because one of my issues, and I'm curious if Rising Sun deals with this with the diplomacy. One of my issues with Clockwork Wars is when you play three players, the two people who fight each other are going to lose because the guy who didn't fight is going to sit back and win. Um, so I, I think of Clockwork Wars as a, as a two or four-player game, ideally. Uh, with with the alliance thing and how it can change each turn, although there's only three quote unquote, turns in Rising Sun. I'm just wondering how much that mitigates that. Uh, When I played Rising Sun, it was five people, and it was exactly what you're talking about Hassan, is there was so much going on, there were so many pieces on the board, there's so much mobility in terms of the naval connections and the map is relatively small. I just felt like anything could happen at any turn and I had no idea how I was gonna possibly win. I was fascinated with it, but it just felt like five people was this big crazy Donnybrook and everything was out of my control. Uh, so I'm super curious to try Rising Sun with fewer people. I'm curious if the diplomacy does anything to mitigate the three-player issue where the two people who fight each other weaken one another and the guy who sits out wins. Um, so, I yeah.
2: yeah, I think it's tricky three-player. We did play one game three-player, and it, it it's it's just tough because in that first season – Two of the people are going to form an alliance, and every time they take an action, they're going to be helping each other. And then there's that third person who's just left flapping in the breeze. Right. And it is it is actually tough to catch up from that. So um, I think you know we've played at three, four, and five, and and I think by far I prefer four player. I, I think it just works best that way. Right. So there's right. always there's always two alliances going on. Um, you know, unless. Unless there's some crazy betrayal or something.
0: Do you, does does uh, does Blood Rage have the big crazy miniatures? Oh yeah. Oh okay.
2: Because I
0: was going to say, I wonder how much that has to do with Rising Sun's success. Uh...
2: I think I think it's big. I mean, Simon uh, does great production, and their miniatures are absolutely beautiful. Um, one thing about the Blood Rage monsters is that they they felt more they feel more impactful on the game whereas in Rising Sun these monsters are just enormous and then they sit on the map and you're like what what's the strength of that and this it's plus, like, yeah. plus 1 plus <laughs> 1 like what That's bullshit like that, that that's a giant fire dragon that's got to right, be right. more than that you know and Well so now there's...
0: Hassan to be fair the dragon is plus 3 i believe Okay that's true <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh Mike and I will have to give that uh a shot. See how that See, now Mike he's made me think I should have gotten Blood Rage. <laughs> Thanks.
1: I've, I've uh, heard really good things about Blood Rage. I haven't played that one either.
0: I think is is that the one that's got like a Valhalla space in the middle or something? It does, yeah. Yeah, I think I have played that one once as well. Uh,
2: I I think, uh, Tom, legitimately, they're both worthy of repeated plays. And, you know, as with all board game stuff, it's a subjective opinion thing. Like, you know, I I think some people really jive with Rising Sun more than Blood Rage and vice versa. And I I just tend to lean more towards Blood Rage. Right.
0: Well, I want to get into some subjective opinion stuff here that I think where I'm going to be the wet blanket. Uh, And let's talk about something that has a little bit less direct conflict uh Mike what do you what have you
1: played recently? So uh the other day we played Dinosaur Island. Uh, it was our first full game of it. Uh we had uh four players. Um it's an interesting game in that it's got these phases which are vastly different that kind of feed into each other. There's a research phase, a market phase, uh and then kind of building up your park and then earning money from uh visitors who come in and uh potentially survive with dinosaur attacks. <laughs> uh overall I think it was I really enjoyed that it captured the feel of like a computer tycoon game from researching new things and building up resources to actually build them um, it was a little bit long even though we were playing the short game but I think that will get better in subsequent plays mm-hmm. um, we were using there's so there's three different uh, decks of objectives there's a short medium and long game and you pick uh, one per player plus one uh, so we had five objectives and we had things like, uh, have twelve pieces of DNA or earn nine bucks in one round from your visitors. Uh, but overall, I I liked it for my first play. I'm I'm looking forward to playing again. Everyone else in the group seemed to like it, um, and I actually even have the expansion we can incorporate next time. But we we didn't for our first play.
0: Now, did you guys play uh, the? Because I played this once. Uh, Hassan, do you know Dinosaur Island directly?
2: Yes. Um, okay. Gotten to, I've gotten to play it twice.
0: So, did you guys play it with? Because uh, I don't own it, but my friend, she brought her copy. She was super uh, excited about it. Uh, we didn't. There, there's apparently a way you can play where each player's corporation has some sort of an asymmetrical power, which is a, the more advanced version, I presume, that you play once you understand the systems a little better. Did you guys do that, Mike, or were all your corporations the same?
1: They were all the same. The, uh, okay. the asymmetric stuff is in the expansion. Oh, uh, oh, right. Okay. okay. And it's it's funny. They give you an extra uh, little meeple for your corporate leader who has a cane just like the guy in Jurassic Park.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> that's on the box is the, the, the uh, mosquito and the little amber cane here oh, yeah. I believe. Yeah, okay,
1: I, I, right. I'm amazed this this company hasn't been sued for Jurassic Park stuff. There's a little guy that looks like the DNA guy from the movie and everything. And but... the
0: font and everything. Right, yep. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so – here was my concern about it, uh Mike, and I'd be curious if you would would agree with this because i I think I still have that concern after having played once um It's just worker placement
1: It is worker placement with a little bit of bidding uh on mm-hmm. as far as you know what I'm gonna buy from the marketplace and trying to preempt someone from getting something they need uh but it is very much a worker placement game
0: yeah. Hassan what was your what was your takeaway from your two playthroughs?
2: Well, I, I think I mentioned this to Mike last time is that I, I have both positive and negative feelings about it afterwards. I um so I, I think I would need to play more to really solidify them. But one one thing that I'm not sure I feel about is that the objectives really drive the the game to a certain degree and rather than the game feeling sandboxy it kind of says oh okay in this game i really need to just crank out a bunch of you know this arbitrary like type of dinosaur this thing um and on the one hand i think the that can make every game feel different push you in a different direction um on the other hand i'm not sure how i felt about it from a sort of narrative perspective and then yeah go ahead
0: it does kind of compromise, because Mike, what you mentioned, it makes perfect sense, and it's, I think, the appeal of the game. You mentioned it's like these tycoon games, um, right. and that's part of the appeal of a tycoon game is, I'm just going to you know, build up my corporation whichever way I decide this time. I'm going to focus on this, that, or the other, but having those rigid objectives does kind of compromise, I think, the feel of a tycoon game, uh, where you, you have to focus on the these four, it depends on the number of players, I guess, these little elements of your economy to win, and if you go off on any tangents or diversions, you're you're just going to hurt yourself.
1: Right, and I haven't looked at the the long game objectives. Uh, I believe it has things like you know have a certain number of carnivores and so on, um, which you're right. It still will direct kind of how your what people are after, uh, because those objectives are worth you know six points plus for per uh, person getting them, and they you know, and it's kind of a rush to get them because uh, people can multiple people can claim them. But after the phase uh, elapses, where the first one was claimed, it's then closed off. Right, right. So everyone's rushing to get you know a certain number of dinosaurs to get this objective.
0: Yeah, and you want to get it at a time when your other the other players can't get it on that same turn. You want to be able to shut them out, right? Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think it's this gets at something that uh, I kind of see as a failure of design, and. The issue, so another game I mentioned previously was Archipelago, which, which I love. And Archipelago, when you sit down to play it, you can play a short, medium, or long game. Dinosaur Island, you play a short, medium, or long game. Uh, I feel like a game length should be an integral part of its design. Because with Archipelago, certainly, and I suspect this is the case with Dinosaur Island, when you play a short game it's partly an economic engine builder, you're not gonna be able to develop much of an economic engine before, bam, the game is over. You play a medium game, and yeah, you get a little further into it, but it really takes the long game to flex the economy and the interaction of the different systems, uh, and and to, to really get a sense for how it all comes together before having it like slam shut on you, uh, arbitrarily to make the game shorter uh so i feel like when you play a short game of dinosaur island and you've got those fairly uh easy to attain objectives because the game ends after a certain number of them are attained it's, it's not letting you experience a lot of the interactions and systems and how they deal with each other, because it wants to get you out of there quickly, because that's what you decided was your priority, is rather than sitting here for three hours to experience in the full game, you wanted to sit here for one hour and experience a shorter element of it. Uh, and I think that that kind of, in some games, you, the designer needs to realize that the in order to really flex the design that he's created, it takes a certain amount of time. And letting people just play half of the game, I don't think serves anyone.
1: Yeah, and, and I definitely saw that in Dinosaur Island. You know, by the time we finished the game, you have your little board with your park and where your dinosaurs and your attractions are and stuff. And no one even had half their board filled up by the time we finished up. Yeah. So we weren't giving, we weren't getting to the high excitement levels, which gets a ton more visitors and more money. And you kind of, you know, get this exponential growth of your park. So that actually, you know, ended before it kind of got even running. Um, so I definitely I think that's a fair point.
2: You can you can in that game you can have a situation also where someone ends the game quite suddenly, right? I mean, they can have like a really solid turn and then suddenly, boom! That that objective's taken, and you're like, oh my god, the game's ending, and that can sort of take people off guard, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the positive spin on that, and I think the reason why I'm still undecided of whether I like it is that. All too often, you know, worker placement Euro games just have this kind of, well, I mean, Feld's a good example of this, right, where it's like a point salad approach, and everything you do earns you points, and then at the end of the game, everyone, there's this, like, pull out your calculator, do this crazy math thing, and add up all your points, right? And, <laughs> and I do I do have an issue with games that, that do that. I just, I, I find that if at the end of the game we're all doing hardcore arithmetic, it does, it, it, it leaves me with a slightly bad taste in my mouth, and dinosaur island with the objectives that i don't know that that feels a little bit more epic than just trying to gather up as many little tiny bits of points as you can
1: right Right. and in that game you still get the little bitty points because you get one right. per a uh, uh, park patron just visiting your stuff right. and then you get some points at the end for what you actually built up but those objectives being so many points are extremely important so
0: How well do you guys feel that it expressed this idea of a dinosaur theme park, of a Jurassic World theme park?
1: I thought it did a pretty good job uh, from you need to kind of there's a a slightly random element of what your threat level is going to be each turn. So if you're not careful, you can easily have dinosaurs escaping and eating people, which uh, makes you lose victory points. Um, But I thought it captured the feel as far as the specialists you can get and all the upgrades you can build. Um, I was pretty happy with it.
2: I mean, I'll, I'll just repeat the common issue I have. I do think they missed an opportunity with not giving the dinosaurs, not necessarily all unique effects, but differentiating them a little bit. Right. And I, I I remember reading some of their designer diary stuff and them saying that the, the game started with lots of differences between carnivores and herbivores and different dinosaur types, but they sacrificed that to create a cleaner design. Um, but I would say that the, the design already feels a little a little bulky to me. It's got a lot of phases. It's got a lot of stuff going on for like what Tom was saying, ultimately, is like a straightforward work replacement game. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why they didn't just throw in that additional complexity of making the, the different dinosaurs somewhat more interesting and varied, um, which would give the game just more narrative feel as well as giving you more strategic things to pursue each time you play. Yeah. And to yeah, me, I, that's a... I, doing, i'm sorry I think, quick, yeah go ahead mike
1: yep. i was gonna say i think next time we're gonna use the expansion which adds uh water-based dinosaurs um it doesn't change the mechanics other than it's a different type of uh paddock you develop for them uh but then the, the asymmetric uh corporation powers i think will be really yeah. cool there's one that's like a an egg hatchery and there's one corporation that could build the super mega t-rex that's really dangerous but generates a lot of points so i think that might be fun uh fun addition to the game.
0: See, yeah, that sounds that sounds great and that sounds like something that I would definitely want in there. Uh, even though I agree with Hassan there seems to be a lot in there. Uh, What surprised me is how simple it was to kind of explain and understand like it it was very straightforward, but there was just a lot of stuff, even though it was all straightforward, that you move through on any given turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd be a little worried about loading on that asymmetry and the new kinds of dinosaurs, but I guess that's why the add-on is is modular. You just pick what you're ready for. Right. Uh, But I I agree. Like I – one of the fundamental – Uh, Part of the fundamental appeal of dinosaurs is how cool each dinosaur is in its own unique way. And I really didn't feel like there was much to that in Dinosaur Island, where the dinosaurs were kind of, for the most part, an arbitrary combination of these different colors of DNA that a lot of times I kind of had a hard time differentiating Wait, is that the purple one or the blue one? Like, the, <laughs> the, and that just seemed really, like, I, I, I don't know if there's a better way to do that, uh, but each dinosaur is just a recipe for the most part, and you, you, you throw the bits into the recipe, and then you put a little figure that just kind of moves a track, um, and I didn't get a sense that, here's what really bothered me, Mike. Jurassic Park, as a story, is all about, A, dinosaurs are cool, and B, Holy crap, what if they got loose? Right. <laughs> and, and that that B part, so if it if it's not doing the A part very well for me, the fact that it's doing nothing with that B part just almost kills my interest because there's several times where it's like, eh, I don't know that I want to raise my security level. Okay, I'll let one guy get eaten and that yeah. should be that should be like an apocalyptic that's the <laughs> end of your park like the, the dinosaurs should rampage and destroy things and it's it's a it's a one point well I guess a two point swing like I can I can swallow that I don't care if the T-Rex gets out and costs me two victory points <laughs> because I'm saving money uh, I just really felt like it, it it sold short the idea of rampaging
1: dinosaurs yeah, what's funny is in our game, no no people got eaten at all because everyone was cognizant of their uh, security level the whole time. So. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah.
2: That um, that would be a really cool game, but the design challenge of that, of what you're describing, Tom, I think it would be really tough, right? Because you'd want not only some kind of park management game, it doesn't necessarily need to be worker placement, but it needs to be some kind of economic management game. And then... Um, sort of like almost like a second game within a game is, um, oh my God, what if the dinosaurs get loose? How do we deal with that? Right? Like, does it have like tactical elements? Do you have like little squads of of people that can go out and capture the dinosaur? I mean, that would be really awesome. I want to play that game, but it sounds tough.
0: Uh, Frontier Development, or I think that's their name, they're, they're a company that uh, did a Jurassic Park-themed video game, uh-huh. uh, and it has a similar problem. is that It wants to be a tycoon game, but because it's Jurassic Park-themed and Part of Jurassic Park is, holy crap, what if they got loose? Every now and then a dinosaur will get out and maybe eat some guests, and you have to play a, a really simple little, okay, you're in a helicopter, and you click on the dinosaur to shoot a tranquilizer dart on it, and then it goes back into the paddock, and everything resets, and there's a, there's a cash penalty, but 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 you're absolutely right. Those are two different kinds of, of designs, aren't they, is... Dinosaurs are cool, let's grow them, and holy crap, they're loose, what are we going to do? So it it reminds me, you would have to build a game, the design, around this idea of collapse and rampage and falling apart. And I'm thinking of a Phil Eklund game called uh, Greenland, which is about the, uh, the climatological change in Greenland that basically wiped one of the native populations, and the Vikings who settled there, wiped them off the map. And when you play Greenland, you start as one of these three uh, groups that settled Greenland historically, and you're hunting there, and you're trading, you're developing technology, and you're growing your tribe. but as this ice age sets in and destroys these hunting grounds, the map gets smaller and smaller, and there are fewer and fewer places you can hunt, and you end up having to fight other players over this limited territory as the map is falling apart around you. And I'm thinking there could be a Jurassic Park game like that where the park is falling apart around you, and you're just having to deal with surviving in a collapse and and, uh, somehow preserving what you can of it. Uh, So yeah, it would be a completely different design uh, you're absolutely right. But I'd like to play something like that. And Dinosaur Island, definitely not that, though.
2: So. I, the the combo of Phil Eklund designing a Jurassic Park game sounds awesome already. We should You should make that happen. Well,
0: you have yeah. something called Bios Megafauna, which I've never played, but I'm assuming <laughs> there might be rampaging carnivores in it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Dinosaur Island, and I will say – Boy, that uh, color palette in Dinosaur Island, that's an eye grabber. I I think that gets people – I love that kind of 80s neon vibe to it.
1: Yeah, you're totally right about the colors of the DNA, though. We had to actually kind of look at the shapes of them because they Ugh. don't quite match between the
2: dice and what's on the board.
0: Right, right. Yep. <laughs> Even there. Yeah. Uh, give them and, letters or something. I couldn't, yeah. Uh, uh,
2: before we leave this topic, I will just want, want to do a shout-out. There is another Dinosaur Park right? uh, game coming out. I think it's out now, Dinogenics. And I've been eyeing it because it, it seems like it's a different enough game and maybe even alleviate some of the concerns people have about Dinosaur Island, that if people are interested in that, that, that kind of, that theme for a game, it's maybe worth checking out.
0: Yeah. I was super curious about
2: that one as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So, uh, let's get down to what you are playing, Hassan. What's been at your table on your table lately?
2: Um, gaming has been good lately. I've been spending way much time, too much time, uh, Working on my Wizard and Diablo 3 running, well, we're not going to talk about that, though. <laughs> running these riffs and all that. No, I've been, um, we've been playing a lot. Uh, my group is going through our first session of Twilight Imperium 4, which we've never played before. And I'm not going to p- talk about that today because we actually haven't finished our session yet. I think we're about eight hours in and we're not quite done yet. Um, I'll also Wait, so this do you
0: guys p- have, like, a table where you're maintaining the game state and everything?
2: Yeah, one of the, one of the guys sacrificed his table and has just been sitting there for, for a couple of weeks. We're playing it across multiple sessions, yeah. Is it uh, hard to
0: jump back into something? Like, I think of when I'm playing a game of Civilization, <laughs> and I right. get, like, into the modern age, and at a certain point, if I save and quit out and don't come back within the next day, I'm right. never going to be able to pick up all the, the threads again. Is that right. an issue with Twilight Imperium 4?
2: It hasn't been for us, I think, in part because we, we, you know, we take a photo of the board immediately after finishing, and then, you know, the four of us are just constantly chatting, I mean, all the time, basically, right? So we're messaging each other. And so the next, you know, several days until we get together again, we're just talking about how we're going to fuck each other up and stuff like that. So <laughs> we keep it fresh in our memory, and it actually... I found that that's also a game that has a lot of stuff going on, right? You're 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 juggling a lot of different systems, and you want to do a lot of different things. You want to tech up, and you want to get this planet, and you want to attack so and so. Um, and I find that actually take, taking a break from it and stepping back from it has helped me organize my thoughts periodically. Um, mm-hmm. All I'll say at this point is that I didn't know what to expect going in. I'd been hesitant for so long to to even try a game like that because it's it's sort of infamous for how long it takes. But the four of us are thoroughly enjoying it and I would absolutely recommend it to anyone. The the new Fantasy Flight fourth edition of it is really beautiful and it is it is, I think, trimmed down compared to previous editions mechanically, so it's it's been a lot of fun. And it does obsolete play? Twilight
0: Imperium three, right? Like there's nothing in Twilight Imperium three that you miss.
2: Um, I've never played it, but you know, I just, I think they did a great job with it. I think this is another example of Fantasy Flight kind of iterating off of a previous design and making it, making it better each time. And it, it feels to me like this is the definitive edition. Um, yeah. Yeah. And
1: I had played third edition years ago and I really liked it, but you know, it was a seven, eight hour game. So I haven't checked out 4th so I'm curious to see what they've, uh, what they've changed or refined?
0: Yeah, it, it it really is just a matter of you know do you can you find people to suck it up and spend the eight ten hours or whatever it takes yep. to, to play? Yeah, yeah. So then, what have you played, Hassan? That's taken fewer than ten hours?
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been playing a little bit of KeyForge still, but the the one that I I think I was going to talk about with you guys is the Fallout board game. That's been my primary solitaire game lately. I've also had a chance to play it with with other people, so I have some thoughts on it. And Tom, I think you have thoughts on this one too. Is that right? I'm
0: looking at my solitaire game right now with the new California expansion in progress.
2: Yes. Cool. All right. Um, So, yeah, so the the general summary of it is that it's a competitive post-nuclear adventure game based on the Fallout video game license. And... I'm, I'll just say right off the bat that I think that, in my opinion, it is a thoroughly mediocre game that I am <laughs> irrationally forgiving of, um, uh-huh. in, in part because of the theme. I just, I really love post-apocalyptic themes. Those are games that I, I tend to look for. I think last time we chatted, we talked about how important theme is in purchasing and enjoying a game, and, and I said how it was it was very important for me. Um, so if I, if I have to step back from this game objectively, I think it's got a lot of problems, but I still really enjoy playing it. Um, so I want to know what it is
0: like playing, because I've only played it solitaire, partly because I can't imagine it's a very good multiplayer game.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. I think that, I mean, Fallout falls within, uh, you know, a, a genre of of board game that's been around for a long time, the the so called sort of sandbox adventure game. I think a, a good classic example of that is is Ruinbound, which oddly enough is a Martin Wallace design, right? Um,
0: Ruinbound is Martin Wallace?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You just blown
0: my mind. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what it's, you're going to you know, be yeah, now i'm going to have to buy a copy of fricking runebound
2: No, you don't want to uh. do. <laughs> okay <laughs> no i i, I also am, am am oddly irrationally forgiving of runebound too I, um but i would also put you know mage knight in this category i would put um what are some other sort of adventure type sandbox games you go around and you explore i mean even you know too many bones might but there's lots of games that fall into this category mm-hmm. And when they're done competitively, almost always it is a race to get somewhere, right? So you're, you're racing to level up your character, you're racing to get loot and, and get better equipment so that you can achieve the endgame condition before anybody else. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, traditionally in these games, the players are not interacting with each other in any meaningful way. Um, maybe you might be trading with each other, maybe there are rules for attacking another player if you land on their space. But um, you can imagine that if you're playing these games with your kids, for example, or as a family, you would, you would even avoid doing those things. So you're all kind of just driving your story forward, and then somebody eventually gets to the end and, and wins. And everyone's like, oh, okay, you won this one. And you're right, Tom, I think that there is a, a critical problem with that, um, I mean, some of the problems are downtime, right? So you have to kind of sit back and watch somebody else do fun stuff that you play no role in whatsoever. Uh-huh. Um, that that's only mitigated if you can, if you have the ability to sort of sit back and enjoy watching somebody's story unfold, right? right. Like if if you can just sit there and be like, "This is fine. I'm going to watch you roll the dice." And oh, you just you know got eaten by a rad scorpion. That's hilarious, right? If you get enjoyment out of that, then then that's 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 going to help mitigate this problem. But um, right, I, the
0: idea is that you're playing your part, and then everything else you have to enjoy being a spectator on. So if you're playing right. a three-player game, two thirds of the game are you spectating someone else, and then one third is you playing yourself. Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right. And and when we played we played a three-player game of this, and two of us really enjoyed it. One of them I don't think did, and. Uh, we were able. I, we're all Fallout fans, so that helped a lot, right? We we sort of indulged in that that universe, and we even pull out, you know, put on the Fallout Three soundtrack while we were playing the game, and <laughs> we did as best we could to to get ourselves in that mood. But um, and this is sort of jumping ahead to one of the core flaws of the game is that the the way that victory is determined in Fallout is through accumulation of what are called agenda cards. Um, And these agenda cards will grant you a certain number of victory points. And when you hit a certain threshold of victory points, you win the game. So an agenda card might be worth one or more of these points. And they're Uh, hidden, too. And they're hidden, right? And so you might be pursuing an agenda that says, you know, level up your character to its max. And if you do so, this card is now worth two or three victory points. But a lot of the agenda cards are linked to this faction system in the game, which on first glance is super clever. Mm -hmm. Um, You pick a scenario when you're playing the game and every scenario has sort of two factions that are competing with each other. So it might be, you know, the Brotherhood of Steel versus the Enclave or something like that, right? And as you pursue your story through the game, you may very well end up aligning yourself with one of those factions. You don't necessarily have to, but you, you, you probably will at some point. So let's say I link up with the Enclave and I'm playing with Mike and at some point let's say he links up with the Brotherhood of Steel. So now we have um, a goal in the game where we want to help drive our faction forward. And you do that by completing quests and it kind of advances them along this little track. And your agenda cards, the value of them can be can be dictated by how far ahead your faction is compared to the one that you haven't aligned yourself with, right? And Uh, At first glance, that seems really cool. It's a a nice way of building in the narrative of the game, the video game series. Um, You get to kind of play along with one of these these factions that you kind of know and love. But the reality of it is that getting those agenda cards is is quite random. And um, one of the players might just get lucky and land into a few agenda cards that end up giving them a ton of points, where somebody else gets agendas that are much harder to complete and don't give them a lot of points. And in our three-player game, that happened to one of our players where he just he just didn't get the right agendas, and he had like zero points at the end of the game, whereas the the other two of us were doing fine with ours. So uh, I think at its core, the competitive experience has a has a major problem with its victory condition, and the only way around that is if you just don't give a crap about that, like you're just playing it for for the story.
0: Well, and I, I will say too that I think that this is a Uh, 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 It's a a lack of appreciation of a core tenet of playing Fallout. When I play Fallout, the the, the video game, the idea is I choose what my character does. If I want to help the Brotherhood of Steel, I do that in this playthrough. If I want to help the Underground Railroad, I do that. If I want to align with the synthetic uh, Android people, I do that. In the board game, it's based on those agenda cards you draw. Like, I don't really get to pick. It depends on what agenda cards I've drawn and then that determines what quests I need to do to win the game or to push it towards completion. It just feels like out, out of my control and it's the opposite of sandboxy. It's the opposite of that, that fallout uh, sensation of doing whatever you want to do, that freedom.
2: Right, yeah. right. No, I agree with that. I think the, the game... The game it dances around cleverness and then it always ends up undercutting itself um, and I, I think that's part of it like a, another example is you know a core part of these types of adventure games is that they're they're typically rpg light in that you have you pick a unique character at the beginning of the game um, and that character comes with some set skills and then you level them up and you maybe you get some new skills as you level up and you get gear and usually that leveling up is gonna occur through combat. And in this game, both combat and leveling up are just disappointing. They're just pretty mediocre experiences. Like the combat is simplified to a single roll of three dice. It it does feel pretty random. There's very few decisions to make when you engage in combat. Those dice yeah. are
0: so inscrutable, too. I hate how it's, it's trying to be, like you said, it's trying to be clever, but it's getting hung up on itself. Those dice are so inscrutable with, like, the number of hits you get and and what body parts you hit. And, like, I had to sit down with them and say, okay, there's a headshot on one out of six. There's a chest shot on three out of six. And even then, with this list of the distribution of the different faces, it's not clear, like, okay, well, the one of the headshots has two damages on it. And another – or one of the chest shots has that. And then – there's a legs and arms together on one side. Like it's so inscrutable and out of your control and it just adds to this feeling of randomness. Like I see right. a monster and I know I have to hit it in the chest or the legs, but that doesn't tell – I have no sense for what that means in terms of what the dice could roll. Uh, and I just feel like it's a, it's a worst-case scenario for how to represent – that's which is the combat system in the, the video game, it's a worst case scenario for how to express this in a board game.
2: I think it's terrible. I agree. Yeah. It, I mean, again, I can see what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to avoid the, the problem of an adventure game. Oh, you're in combat. Okay. I'm just going to go take right. a bathroom break because right. you're going to be doing that for the next five minutes, right? Yeah. And so they're like, no, it's really fast. Just roll these three dice and da da But it takes away any fun decision making which yeah. is just terrible right yeah. you you yeah. can't take away decision making especially for something as important as combat um and the yeah, the only the only thing you might be able to do is if you have a weapon which you might not have is you might get a reroll and that's it right so it's just it's to me it feels really unexciting and the monsters aren't differentiated enough from each other and yeah, the fallout exactly. universe has so much variety in, in creatures and, and and the combat was was you know is was interesting and the weapons you used mattered and none of that is represented well in in the board game and i want to say too like you you mentioned the rerolls that's a big part of what makes a weapon
0: good of what Weapon you're good with versus what weapon doesn't help you but might help someone else is how many rerolls do you get? And that's some of the special abilities companions might give you. But because the dice are so freaking inscrutable in terms of what the results could be, I am never sure if I should reroll or if I have, should stick with what I've got. Like, it's so unclear whether or not a reroll is a good idea at any given point. What's like, is it more likely that I'm going to screw myself or help myself? And I just feel like that's just really needlessly complicated in a game where they're clearly trying to streamline the combat. Right. Uh, so right. I. So here's another thing, too, Hassan, that I love that they're doing, but I think they've kind of done it a little bit of the wrong way. Um, this idea of a deck of cards that is a library that you don't touch until you're instructed to, at which point you go in and you fish out, Okay, take out card 192 and read that, and then take out card 205 and shuffle it into the top three cards of the encounter deck so you know you're going to run into it soon. And if you want to find it, go explore some ruins. I love what that does. I love this idea of cards that you control where they go And you look through a library to determine what little narrative threads you're going to pluck out and how that kind of resembles these old choose your own adventure books where you go to page 132 if you punch the orc or you go to page 98 if you sneak past it. Uh, So I, I love this idea of a card library that's fixed that in any given game you can navigate your way through it in different ways. And that's the quest system. But what they do and... When you play solitaire this isn't an issue but it's another reason i think this is a weird multiplayer game is that if i for instance go into a town and i rescue a puppy who people are going to kill and then i become uh heroic and i get a little token that says hey you're heroic and i put that on my little board so i'm a good guy i've basically done a good playthrough uh and then it also says okay take this card and then shuffle it into the top few cards on the city deck when you go into a settlement. And what that card is going to be is me walking into town and people saying, Oh, we love you. You're heroic. You saved that puppy in that other town here, have some free stuff. And that's great. It's this idea of a choice and consequences like in a video game. And I love that sort of thing. But here's the problem. When you play it multiplayer, I'm the one who saved the puppy. I then shuffle that card into the little settlement deck. But then, Hassan, you walk into a settlement and you draw my card (laughs) for being heroic. No, you didn't save the puppy. I saved the puppy. You shouldn't get to resolve that card. That is so unfair. And it works the same way. Anybody can cash in anybody else's quest. And it makes no narrative sense. And it completely screws up the whole choice and consequences idea. It's so unfair.
2: Totally. Yeah, no, it's incredibly infuriating when you've, you're you trying to pursue this fun little side quest, and you're like, wait a second, we're all pursuing this right. together? It doesn't make any sense right. story-wise.
0: yeah. And, and so Solitaire, what they do, and that, this is not an issue in Solitaire, uh, because it's, first of all, it's easier to get the cards when you see it, because you only take one additional card, and you shuffle the two cards, and you know it's one of those two. Uh, it reminds me, by the way, of what Fantasy Flight did with the latest Arkham Horror. Does either of you guys know that one?
1: Uh, yeah. I have I, the third edition I haven't haven't played it.
0: Because <laughs> they do a great, they do some really cool like card play stuff. Like where's this card, and you put that card somewhere, and uh, it's still like a choice and consequences where you can shuffle the, you can feed the story into different decks in a cool way. Um, but playing solitaire, it's not an issue in Fallout because all of the cards are of course about you. You decide which quests to do. Um, uh, but that whole quest system with the t- the factions, the two factions competing, and the way that it forces a game clock to push you forward in Solitaire, uh, I think messes up, again, the whole sandbox feel, is you've got this kind of ruthless clock in Solitaire that is going to slam the game shut if you don't... M- accumulate a certain number of those victory points that you were talking about hassan and once you accumulate them the game's instantly over you're not seeing through to the end of a thread or anything you're just hitting a point where you get enough points that you've won the game uh and in in solitaire that just doesn't the the scenarios just feel a little too scripted and non-sandboxy i
1: agree Does does the expansion alleviate any of the game's core problems um you know, I received this as a gift over a year ago. Mm-hmm. I still haven't played it because of kind of middling reviews. Uh, so I don't know if they've fixed any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the biggest complaint I always heard was it's co-op, sort of, but also competitive. And kind of what you said about the quests and the cards and stuff overlapping. Yeah.
0: Hassan, what's your thought on New
2: California? Um, I, I think it doesn't solve the problems, really. It, it does add, you know, more more stuff to each of the decks, which was welcome. Especially in the the starting decks, because... The, the starting decks for the for the cities and for the... I forget what the, the other deck is. So uh, Ruins and Settlements, yeah. Ruins and Settlements, yeah. The, those starting decks basically will see the side quests that you're going to run into for your adventure. And I, I, one feature I like about the game is, is that every time you play, the side quests are probably going to be different, so you're going to see different parts of that deck, right? Mm-hmm. That big, fat deck, that story deck... Um, so it does add more there, but it, it definitely does not address the victory point problem, which to me is the, really the core problem with the, with the experience.
0: Now I will say, so Hassan, have you played, so the, the expansion comes with extra tiles, uh, a few digital monsters, more like equipment cards, four more characters. Uh, and it does this, fantasy flight just annoys me to no end when they do this, uh, it also gives you quote expanded versions of the quests that are in the core game, which is basically saying, uh, you know, those quests that you bought, those are kind of invalid. Now, here's the way you really want to play them, and it basically involves shuffle, making the maps bigger, uh, which I don't, I don't think that, that I think that does a weird thing, like because some of the things you want to do, and this is part of the tuning of the game, is explore the whole map. And by adding eight tiles to the map, that kind of screws up that element of taking that approach to winning the scenario. Uh, it just throws more stuff in and says, you know, you really should play it this way with a bunch more stuff, even though we're not going to really change much or, or tune it very differently. So, right. so that drives me crazy expansion. But have you played the, the, the new California scenario?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I just finished it a couple nights ago.
0: Solitaire? Or, yes yep because i have to say Hassan, you know what mike was asking i think that new Calif- california <laughs> mo- like that fixes a lot for me i no, I,
2: I yeah yeah I, I did
0: like it yep i so i love the new california i think it is almost single-handedly rescued the game for me to be honest that's the so i've played it twice now and this is my third go through here um What this does, and it says to me that Fantasy Flight knows what they screwed up, in which case why did they release it in the first place that way, but it it fixes a lot of the issues that I have with this choice and consequences stuff and with the the dual, the binary thing where the two factions are going and one of them is going to slam the game shut at a certain point, so you need to hurry and win. The way that the agenda cards, the victory, the victory points are, are gone, by the way. You just have two tracks moving, and furthermore, you control the tracks. You decide, and it puts out quests. You don't have to, there can be multiple factions out there, multiple quest threads you can pick up, and they can let you move those two things on the track. One of the things is like the bad progression. It makes the, the, the enclave enemies dip more difficult, and it'll... It'll close the game in a loss condition for you if that track moves up. And the other track is simply you winning. And if you get that other track to the end, you've won the game. So you have options to push back the Enclave track or to push your track forward um, as you play based on what you do. And it feels so much more sandboxy. It feels so much more like I'm controlling the pace of the game and how long it lasts and which quests I want to follow. Um... I like I like it a lot.
2: I I mean I agree with you totally, and I enjoyed it, and it was very close when I played it, which was really satisfying. Um, it's, the problem is, that it's just one scenario, right? So we're talking one scenario in the you know to get the base game and the expansion, and it's like, oh, is that worth right. it? Right. right. But I will um, say the
0: one scenario though, it, it lets you explore that like. For me, the main content in Fallout isn't necessarily the, arra- the starting conditions of the arrangement of the hex tiles, which are, which are random. The main content to me is that library of some, well, it's like 260 cards now. Uh, and what the New California Scenario does is it lets you explore that deck uh, at a different pace and and explore it in different directions in different ways. So it is just one scenario, but what that one scenario does is gives you lots of ways to navigate the 260 cards in the story library. Right. Um, so so I like that a lot, and I I even the so one of the. The fundamental parts of Fallout is this idea of a vault where the survivors are uh, during the apocalypse and eventually they come out, but then some of these vaults have collapsed and there's hidden tech in them. So they're the dungeons when you play the video game. Uh, The way the vaults work in the board game is that every now and then you'll get a clue uh, for, hey, there's a vault over here. And then the, the library card, the story card tells you, okay, take out cards uh 182 to 189 and make this deck of seven cards and each time you explore the vault draw one of these special encounters and they can interact with each other and i just did one where you get trapped in an underwater vault and you're running out of air and you're gonna, you're gonna, you take damage every turn if you don't create a, a rebreather, uh, and you're trying to find the exit, uh, and the, the tide is, is sweeping you around in there, and you can't move around on the map. You're trapped down there. They create these little mini-stories. And when you're playing a normal scenario with a pretty tight time limit, you really don't have time to, to futz around in these vaults, which is a shame because it's a cool system that's worth exploring, and it's where there's a lot of neat storytelling. Um, but when you play New California, that's one of the things that comes out early is the option to track down different vaults to do these vault missions. Uh, and I feel like this is a great system in the core game that it that it doesn't let you experience that when you play with the expansion in this one new California scenario, it opens up the option to chase down all these vaults, which uh, which I love doing. Uh, so I, I, I'm just crazy like i was with you hasan as i felt it was a mediocre game a lot of classic fantasy flight screw-ups um and then the expansion okay just throw more stuff in there it even kind of screws up some stuff even further but this one new california scenario uh and i play it with multiple characters because it's strictly co-op uh has, has almost completely redeemed the game for me which
2: is weird <laughs> yeah i don't i don't feel quite that positively but like i said at the beginning i i have a fondness for this game and it's and it's kind of irrational but like when i play it it's i i really do enjoy it myself and um i think that it's got just enough um flavor and just enough storytelling and i do like the quest system quite a bit i think it's really clever and um, i'd like to see other games try it i mean it 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 does make me really wish I had my stupid copy of Seventh Continent because I oh. think that that's
0: yeah. – <laughs> You and me both, yeah. I'm,
2: lo- I'm looking Good. right at it right here, guys. Shut
0: up. <laughs> shut up, Mike. Oh, my God. Everyone hates you, Mike. <laughs> oh. oh. Wait. Why do you mean you're looking at it right here? Because you just got it or you've had it? No.
1: No, I have it. It's just I'm right next oh. to my game, so it's on the shelf. <laughs> oh. <you're>, no one <laughs> likes you, Mike. <laughs>
0: uh so real quick Hassan uh did when you played the new California scenario did you do it with one character or with multiple characters or did you play it co-op with a group
2: no I I played I played two by myself and I I really liked how that felt I was two characters able to, you mean yeah I played yeah, two yeah, characters good. okay yeah. good because that's what I was
0: going to recommend is make it where you've got two characters where you've got two different options to travel around and maybe help each other and level up uh and where you're playing it as a solitaire game yeah
2: um, yeah, it it felt really good. And it's definitely the, the that scenario is the one I want to pull out um when I get my, my buddy who's really into Fallout and he you know he was one of the three players that I played with before be like, hey, let's try this scenario. Let's right. do this one full co-op and I think he'll totally be into that. Now I also
0: want to ask you real quick about something with the character progression that I think was completely lost on me uh until I just started replaying it recently. Uh, when you level up, you know, you've know you got the special system. It spells the word special, which is uh, strength, perception, endurance, uh, charisma, intelligence, agility, luck, right? And you've got those stats. And each time you level up, you can draw two little tiles, which will have one of the letters in the word special. And if you don't have either of those yet, you plug it in there. And then that's gonna give you the option to re-roll on their stupid little re-roll system where you're never sure if it's a good idea to re-roll. But when I played previously, Hassan, I sort of thought that, yeah. Every time I can, I want a new letter in special. Like I want to fill up that little special track as quickly as I can. Right. Is that is that how you're playing it?
2: Um, n- not really. No, I I, I, do, I do tend to pick the I do tend to pick the perks now because they they're they're pretty awesome, right? So if you get the same letter twice, um, I I'll, I'll lean towards that versus just adding another letter to my lineup.
0: Yeah, you definitely then know something that it took me a while to figure out because it also makes it, you can level up more, and it's not technically leveling up because there's no real numeric value and you're not getting more hit points or anything, but you then go through the leveling up process more frequently. Right. because it, you have fewer digits to go up. The idea is that the the more of these letters you get, the longer it takes to then get the next one. Uh, so that's the thing that I've been doing and it, it flexes the perk system, but I'm now getting a little bored of the perks. Like right. I, I kind of wish that the perk system was now a little bit more fleshed out beyond each letter having three little options. One of which is useless. One of which is clearly the good one. One of which is maybe situational. Um,
2: yeah. No, it's it's both. Those systems are yet another example of how this game sort of tantalizes you with, oh, that's gonna yeah. be cool. And then when you play it, you're like, oh, that's fucking lame, right? Right, like, right? It's just, it's it's like, oh, I get to pull these two tokens, and that's gonna give me a reroll. But ah, you know, I it, it, it's 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 not even a given that you're ever going to get a chance to use your your P, you know, your perception. Like, right. it, yep. you you might never encounter a skill check that uses that. Like, I'll compare it to something like Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, where you know, like, you're, the, the skills that you have in leveling them up is going to come into play in the game. Like, yeah. if you're going to use those; they're going to be meaningful, and because of that, you you feel really good when you boost those skills. Um, Whereas in this game, like, I just don't care very much. And then the perks, you know, since there's, you know, I, I like you, like you're saying, like, once you see them, you're kind of over them, I wish they were much fatter decks than they are. And almost always, there's one that's like, yep, yeah, that's the one I'm going to take. Yeah. Definitely. Right? Yeah. So...
0: And what that does do a little bit for me is it gives me the sense that, okay, the guy who's got perception, I really hope I draw another P so that I can use that sniper perk to take off t- to pick off a death claw from across the map. <laughs> Right. Like you get these little kind of groove these gameplay grooves going that you get familiar with and they right. give it a little bit of flavor but they're kind of thin uh, ultimately right. when you're just doing that over and over again yeah So Tom
2: I have a I have a question for you how do you deal with character death like do you do you just say that character is dead or do you have them just respawn at the starting spot
0: well, uh, you know, here's the new California scenario. Uh, you respawn, but you scooch up the shield track that's going to end the game and make the enclave tougher. Right. So, uh, so I'm I'm happy with the way that it works in in the new California scenario. Uh, right. are, are you? Su- aren't you supposed to just like lose a bunch of stuff and go back to the settlement? yeah and
2: and it's just it's that's sort of the thing i have with adventure games is i my, i tend to house rule that immediately whenever i play these games and i'm like if i die i'm dead right but that's the end of the game and i'll just have to reboot the whole game if i want to play again playing
0: your board games iron man <laughs>
2: <laughs> it just feels weird to just say oh yeah i respawn right um like oh yeah i started at the home base and you know, and there's weird rules in Fallout. Like, you get to keep the stuff that you had equipped, but if it was in your inventory, you drop it or something yeah, like that, Yeah, yeah right?
0: no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. The three things you can carry around, and you have to decide at the beginning of your turn if you want to change what's equipped. But, yeah, the three things in your backpack, basically, are gone, right? Right, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, I... I mm-hmm, you know, it's a nod to the video game, I guess, right? Because you, you can just respawn or whatever, but it just it takes me out of it a little bit.
0: Well, it also... There's a weird situation where, like, in a way, you might want to die just to teleport. Like, and I I feel that's screwy. There really needs to be a penalty, which is, again, why I like the New California thing, where it scooches up the loss condition uh, pretty dramatically. Like, it's painful when you die in the New California one. In the other ones, it's like, okay, I'm just reset back here. I'll just have to run forward to the front again. Uh, And I've still got all my stuff. And, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, but I agree with you. Like, death needs to have a, a a sting to it. There needs to definitely be a disincentive to die, and sometimes that's, yeah, you got to start all over. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mike, I hate to tell you this, but I guess what we're saying, certainly what I'm saying is Fallout's worth trying, but guess what? You need I, their stupid expansion. i got to
1: buy the expansion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I was hearing
0: as you guys were talking. And that is such a Fantasy Flight thing, too, isn't it? <laughs> For yeah, sure. Yeah. So. Uh, all right. What do you guys have coming up that you're looking forward to playing that we might be talking about in the next two weeks? Hassan, what's what's uh, on the queue for you?
2: Um, I, I I hope that the next time we get together, I'll I'll have formulated my thoughts on Twilight Imperium. I think it'll be a fun. Thing to discuss, especially after I've sort of consumed it and we we finish the game. And I still definitely also want to talk about Keyforge, um, especially with Mike, since he's he's run some tournaments and he's been selling a lot of the decks. I think it's an interesting phenomenon right now, and um, and and I have I have a history with dueling games, and I, and I think there's interesting things to think about their their pros and their cons, and whether Keyforge addresses some of the the primary issues with dueling games mm-hmm.
1: yeah, then, Mike, Mike. Son, I don't, do you play it at a local store because they're about to start up uh, some organized tournaments with prizes and actually earning like uh, tournament points it's starting up real quick here
2: yeah I, I i'm not doing that but if if our local store starts doing that i and another one of the guys in my group would probably be would be up for that we'd be excited to do that because okay um, you know, when you when you get the game, you can like log it with its QR code, and and you know, and you can start tracking its statistics. And man, that really appeals to me. I want to start tracking my stats on my deck, you know. And and so, <laughs> I, but I think to do that kind of officially, you'd have to go to a sanctioned event, right? Correct. Yep. Uh, yeah, I want to do that. Cool. Uh, Mike, what's coming up for
1: you? So I just picked up a game called Tokyo Highway which is kind of a manual dexterity game where you're building these ramps and the oh, highways yeah, yeah. stacking up. So I'm uh, anxious to try that. Uh, we also got the uh, Black Mirror game called Black Mirror Nosedive. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of great reviews on Board Game Geek, but there's only about six or seven reviews, so we'll see. Is that like it's a party
0: a, game, or is it like a real game?
1: It's a social game, uh, okay. but it uses an app, which I know you don't like.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So uh, that's what we're trying uh, in the next week or so. Uh, Maybe some other surprises. I'm not sure yet.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure in two weeks I'll be talking uh, about a game called Too Many Bones, which uh, I have a lot to say about. So uh, that and I hope to get CO2, which is the uh, Lacerda game about uh, carbon emissions. I think I'm going to get to play that with my group, and maybe we'll talk about that next week or next two weeks. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Come on back in two weeks. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Hassan Lopez, Mike Pullman, and we'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Cheers. Have a good one. See ya.